Praise God and thank you for all your generosities. We appreciate it very, very much. I see the kids being released, so be released and enjoy your time together. And as uh, you're being waited upon, uh, let me just share a little bit. We were able to uh, slip away this week. We went with our whole family to uh, uh, the Lake of the Ozarks, which is like in South west kind of dropping central west missouri um it was actually hotter at the lake than i believe it was here in charleston i mean it was it was oppressive it was demonic it it was that was that it was hot i'll just put it to you that way it was you were glad to be able to sit in a lake and just float and stay cool um, but anyway, we got to see all of our kids. Obviously, my mom and dad were there. We got pulled around in the boat and jet ski and all the toys that you have when you're at the lake. At 58 years old, he can still get up and ski on one ski, baby. I won't tell you how I felt the next day, though. But I'm telling you, skiing will pull muscles you never knew you had, and I forgot about. I was glad to have forgotten about them, too, but... But uh, anyway, uh, it was fun, and, and it's always fun because the kids are taking bets in the boat whether or not the old man can get up or not, and so uh, that was fun. And as it is with your vacation, it always is with ours. It's just good to see people and be able to uh, decompress for a little bit, but then to be able to also get home, it's always good to be home, and uh, the last thing we have to do is to go pick up our puppy which your sister just texted me, by the way, and said that she might like to make that handoff today. So, so anyway, um, uh, once we get Pugin back in the house, we're normal again. Amen. I knew you wanted to hear a Pugin report, didn't you? All right. I mentioned as we were beginning our time around the table of the Lord that I'd been reading... Uh, my vacation reading was the book by Metaxas entitled Martin Luther. And again, it may be a book you're interested in. It may be just a book for nerds like me. Uh, but I, years ago, had a couple courses going through school and my training in Luther and Luther's theology. And so when I heard that Metaxas had written a book, uh, in fact, I was able to actually go out and hear him speak uh, just a couple months ago out on John's Island close to Kiowa. Eric Metaxas was speaking at some important event, I think in the Charleston area, and this church got him, uh, an Episcopal church close to Kiowa. And I just happened to hear about it, so I was able to go out there. A couple hundred people uh, got word of it, and so it was more of a small group, and so I got to listen to Metaxas speak. It was, uh, it was a great, uh, great time to hear him just speak about Luther. He was obviously promoting his book, I really didn't think I was going to purchase a book because after you've been through two graduate courses in Luther, do you need another book on your shelf about Martin Luther? But the things that he shared to me were different. I'd not heard them before. Uh, he packaged it in a way that solicited my attention, and so I decided I'd go ahead and pick up a book, and it was a signed copy, and so I have a signed copy on my shelf, and decided I'd take it with me and, and, and read it through the week of vacation, which I did. And of course, most of you know Martin Luther to be the, the person that's associated with what we call the Reformation. The Reformation took place in 1517. It's a long time ago. There's so many things that could be said about it. Of course, there's a book about that thick you can go buy and go find out for yourself. 
But the church needed to be ostensibly reformed. The church had fallen into such a corrupt state that it was no longer tolerable, and God used not only Martin Luther, but he used a number of people in that particular time period in order to speak to the church, in order for the church, and at that time there was ostensibly, you could make the case for one, although the eastern churches had broke off uh, a couple centuries earlier, but most people felt as if there was only one church, and of course we would know that today as the Roman Catholic Church. Luther was not the only one trying to reform things. There had been people previous to him that had tried to reform things. Of course, most of them found themselves tied to a stake and burned. So when Luther comes along and he gets his particular revelations and understanding, some of which had already been spoken, others of which were new uh, to him, not new to God or not new to the Scripture, but at least new to people's awareness, uh, he was undertaking something that for him literally would become life or death. Uh, I mean, in those days, I know it's hard to believe, but if you strayed theologically, it wasn't just that you were called nasty names on social media. I mean, this was life and death stuff. And, and so it, it's difficult, I think, for us to comprehend the seriousness with which all of these things were approached, and yet God had dealt so deeply, and he was so passionate about it, uh, he was willing to eclipse many of those fears in order to bring about this needed reformation. And again, many things could be talked about. Again, probably to many people, this is just nerdy theological stuff that really is of no interest to you. But, but, but I need to bring it back to one thing that should be of interest to us all, and it is this, that Luther felt like the church needed to get back to really one of two things or several things the first largest thing was the centrality of the Scripture. The centrality of the Word of God. That no longer could popes make statements or kings make statements or, or people or, or, or councils simply make statements because people err. But the Word of God does not err. And this would be significant, and it's significant for us too, because Luther was the first one in literally thousands of years that stood up and said this. He said that men's consciences bound to the word of God have ultimate authority. Not a government, not church councils, not popes, the centrality of the word of God. And the reason this was so earth-shattering, not only in the church world, but in the civil world, is because kings and popes were tightly aligned together and uh, the church was tightly aligned with civic government. And Luther was saying this. He was saying government is not the last say. Now how many of you know that's relevant in the 21st century in America? Government is not the last say. Governments err. Supreme courts err. Just because somebody codifies something into law or just because a king says it is so doesn't make it so. Now, this sermon today is not about Romans 13 and about our submission to government, although that would make an interesting conversation. And they talked about it in the 16th century. But the point I'm trying to make is that there is a centrality to the Word of God. And because of that, Luther began to establish what we now know today, the terms in Latin, sola fide, or faith alone, 
sola gratia, or grace alone, and sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. So if you see that somewhere and you're Googling, it basically says faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, and sola de uh, gloria is to the glory of God alone. And these are some of the Reformation statements they made during that particular era. And so Luther begins to do his best to implement these things uh, with regards to reforming the church. Now, the interesting thing, as I was reading, was not only the nerdy stuff that I always enjoy, but that I began to see that Luther enters into what he would define himself as spiritual warfare. Now, this is where I want to land today, and it's this. That any time, as the people of God or as the church of God, we purpose to recover things, to reform things, or to put things aright in our life or in church, there's going to be da 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 spiritual warfare. There's no way around it. And it was interesting to me reading his words all the things that he wrote about, how often he would mention of the devil is trying to stop me. The devil is hindering me. He would call people the devil. Um, now, he knew they weren't literally the devil, but how many of you know the devil works through people? Just like God works through you, guess who the devil works through? Yeah, it works through people as well. And it just kind of lit in me that as we're dealing with our unceasing summer series, that this would be a good time perhaps to pause and just say to you personally and say to us as a group that if you believe that you've lost anything, that anything's been stolen from you, if you've had uh, something escape from you, I I'm here to tell you that when you begin to get that understanding and want to get it back, you're going to find you're going to have to fight to get it. You cannot just sit and hope and wish but there's something in you that has to understand that there's going to be a war to this. Does anybody here but me feel like you've had things stolen from them? Come on, I've, I feel like I've had things stolen from me. I feel like there's been things that I have lost. There are things that have happened that, that, that have just, you know, uh, been hindered or taken away. Listen, if you want them back, you're going to have to learn how to spiritually fight. And that's what I want to talk about today. And so our message today is entitled Warfare Prayer. Anytime you want to press forward, hear me, the devil will not sit idly by to watch you succeed. He's not up in the stands cheering for you as you go forward. He is not a passive devil, nor does he have passive troops that uh, respond to him. So we cannot be passive as a church or a people. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I want to read out of. I just scratched these notes out quickly, sent them to Brad, grateful he was able to get them up on the screen. Uh, we may have to go old school for a few minutes today and actually have to either open our technology or crack open our Bibles. Oh, oh God forbid that we would open our Bibles because I couldn't get them all on the screen. All right, but the major ones I got on the screen. So let's read what Paul says. This is where I want to start. He says to the church, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, 
but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. All right? Warfare prayer. Let's start there. There's so many important passages that I began to find in the Bible about spiritual warfare that it's difficult to just pull out one select passage on the topic. Now, I selected this one in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 because to me it begins to lay the foundation upon which we can begin to build, and it's this. Warfare, spiritual warfare, is not what we would call new revelation. Now, hear me when I say this. Most of the time when you get what you feel like is new revelation, we use that phrase, but honestly, it's probably not new. It's probably thousands of years old. It's just you saw it for the first time. It's always been there. It's always been God's word speaking to us, but we didn't understand it or we didn't get it or we didn't see it until it was enlivened to us. And so this whole business of spiritual warfare isn't new revelation, but I do believe that it has become lost practice. I can remember, maybe some of you can too, back in the early 1990s, that there was great interest and there was great um, teaching and practice in the area of spiritual warfare. I remember this. I remember reading books and and listening to tapes. There was, back in the days when dinosaurs roamed the earth, there was a VHS. Isn't that amazing? VHS player. Uh, We keep a VHS player around because we have still some of those old VHSs, and that's the only way you can do it. Um, But I can remember watching a VHS by Roberts Lairdon about... uh, warfare tongues and it caused quite a stir as to whether or not there was a a language of war in the spirit and again i'm not trying to go down rabbit trails with any of this but there was such there was such emphasis i believe by the holy spirit at that time with regards to spiritual warfare that there was this gush of teaching and and what to many of us was revelation at the time as to regard how to war, I just, I just remember that along with the teaching, there came such backlash to some of these things. I remember John Wimber teaching about the clashing of the kingdoms and how when you're, when you're in a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that you'll by nature clash against the kingdom of darkness. And so all of these things, I could go on and on of, of teachers instructing us about spiritual warfare and it sort of dominated people's thinking and activity it seemed like there were a lot of deliverances going on in that particular time period it seemed like there was a resurgence in deliverance and people knowing that they had certain levels of oppression and influence uh, demonically in their life and they wanted to be set free and that took a type of spiritual warfare and so uh, All of those things took place, but somewhere along the way, I think, and this is just an opinion, now this is thus saith Pastor Baird, somewhere along the way, I think we sort of let it slip. Somewhere along the way, I think we we lost an understanding that there are going to be moments along the way, not just in 1990, 
but all through life where we're going to have to arise and do some battle. Now, there are two extremes I think that we can enter into. One extreme is that we can neglect the importance of this area. The other extreme is that we kind of find this unhealthy obsession with this area. I heard Wimber, John Wimber, talk one time. He said, some people are so demonically focused, they see a demon under every rock and behind every bush. And then he said, I, you know, I wish they'd stay behind the rocks and the bushes. But he said they become unhealthily obsessed with it. C.S. Lewis had his, had his famous quotation, which I didn't write down. He said, he said there's two equal and opposite errors. One is that we, we don't believe it or we neglect it. The other is we become obsessive about it. And he said the devils are equally pleased by both errors. So we need to understand that not everything's a devil. Some things are probably your flesh or your selfishness. But at the same time, we cannot neglect the fact that there is a very real devil with a very real hierarchy, and our job is to recover a proper perspective and usage of spiritual warfare in our midst. And as we begin to enter that area, let me just go over a brief review of the enemy. For a lot of us in this room, this is going to be review, but listen, sometimes a review is a good thing. We need to be reminded of some things Uh, because we tend to neglect them. So let's just review a little bit about the enemy. We don't want to give Satan any more time than he needs, um, but we need to understand a little bit about our adversary in order that we can better defeat him. For example, we need to be reminded that he is a dangerous enemy. Now, don't misunderstand when I, when I say the word dangerous. I'm not, I'm not suggesting he's unbeatable. I'm not suggesting that Uh, He doesn't have a place, that we don't have authority, and we'll get to these issues quickly. But we do need to understand that he's an enemy that's more powerful than you. He's a fallen angel. Uh, His powers exist within the angelic realm. He's not God, so he does not have godlike powers. But he does have supernatural abilities. He is a dangerous enemy. In fact, the Bible tells us, Jesus clearly uh, taught us that Satan was here to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And with that supernatural ability, he becomes a very powerful adversary. And, And if we neglect him, or in some ways we are bound by him or oppressed by him, uh, he can literally kick the daylights out of us. In fact, he takes some people to the brink of such despair that they will even take their own lives. That's a powerful enemy. So we need to be aware that he is this dangerous enemy. And that is why we teach. A lot of people will accuse me of legalism and other things, but that is why we teach that the worst thing you can do is open doors to him. Thank you for the amens. Listen, I understand your freedom. You have a freedom in Christ, and I understand that that all of life can be enjoyed to some extent, but... But don't be opening doors to the enemy, and that is why. It seems silly, and, and, and our kids now tell stories about us, about how we wouldn't watch, let them watch certain cartoons, and we wouldn't let them open doors to certain activities. We didn't let them play with Ouija boards. We made sure the movies they watched. I realize people look at me and they think I'm silly about this stuff. Listen, he's a dangerous enemy. The devil doesn't come to your front door, knock on your door with his red horns and his big tail and his pitchfork and say, let me in. That's not how it works. 
He works through your imagination. He works through open doors. He works through your thinking. He works a lot of times through children's innocencies. Where it's no big deal to you, but they still believe in the Easter Bunny. They believe in the Tooth Fairy. You don't. They do. And then we hand them demonic things and we think it's no big deal. How foolish can that be? So he's a dangerous, dangerous enemy. But we need to realize he is a defeated enemy. A defeated enemy. Colossians 2.15. This is one of those moments you'll have to get this on your own. You'll have to turn your Bible. Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed powers and principalities and made them a public uh, spectacle, triumphing over them. So Jesus, when he died on the cross, defeated the enemy. So Satan is defeated now. Everyone say now. Come on now. Say it one more time. Satan is defeated now. Now this is what you'll say. You'll say, well, if he's so defeated, why is he messing with me so much? 2.15. If Satan's so defeated, why is it that my life is in an uproar? Why is it that these things happen? Why is it that he steals from me? Why is it that I lose? Why is it that I get hindered? Why is this oppression hanging around? If he's a defeated enemy, then why, then, then why don't I see that defeat? It's because... His defeat has been made provisional by the cross. The key is you've got to implement. You have to activate. You have to exercise the authority to enforce the defeat that's been put upon him. Are you following me? Now, you say, well, that, that, this, I'm just giving you questions that have popped into my mind through the years. Well, well if, if he's defeated and he saw the cross and he knows he's, he's defeated... Then, then why doesn't he just give up and go away? Well, it's because he's a deceived enemy. Deceived enemy. John 8, 44. Jesus words himself. In fact, that, that would be good. Why don't, we, why don't we read a little gospel? John 8, 44. This is what we read. Jesus says, speaking to the religious leaders of the day, he says, you are of your father the devil. How many of you know Jesus was so compassionate and seeker-sensitive? He called people, he called people sons of the devil. Can you imagine? Jesus couldn't minister in the 21st century, especially here in America. He says, you are of your father to the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan is the liar. Now here's the deal about deception. The defi- this is how I define deception. Deception is when, it's when you believe the lie. That is when you're deceived. When you believe the lie. Now hear me. Satan not only perpetrates lies, but he believes the lie. And when you believe your own lies, that is what you call being self-deceived. He is self-deceived. So so despite the fact of seeing Christ on the cross, understanding at some level what all that means now, even being rebuked and run off, and all the things that have happened 
through history by the church and by individual believers, Satan still believes the lie that he's going to win. Self-deceived because he's full of lies. That's why he keeps after us because he believes all of these types of things. Now let's get in to now, we've given him enough time. Let's review the believer's position. I want to talk a little bit because before we get into warfare, I want to talk a little bit positionally about who you are. Now, this is a top kind of a topical message. I'm not doing expositional work here, but it's important as we begin to pray because we have to understand who we are. The first thing is that you as a believer must be aware. You need to be aware that Satan is alive. I don't know how well he's doing, but he is alive. And he is working in order to hinder and thwart you. 1 Peter 5.8, you can write all these down. It's not going to be on the screen. 1 Peter 5.8, what does Peter say? He says, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is seeking whom he may devour. So Satan is on a seek and destroy mission with regards of who he can devour. Well, what, do you, what do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean, he's looking for open doors. He's looking for advantages. He's looking for entrances. He's looking for ways with which to get into people's lives in order to wreak havoc. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says these words. He says, lest Satan take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant. Your ignorance says, my people perish for lack of knowledge and hell has opened wide its throat. The reason life at times, people's lives are like hell, is because lack of knowledge and your ignorance. And I'm not, we're not demeaning you in any way, shape, or form. But our problem is we're no longer taught the Bible, we're taught inspiration. Or we're taught pithy sayings. Or, or we're taught self-help. And that, that doesn't help you. What helps you is knocking out your ignorance in order that you can begin to understand again that in your knowledge you can keep your life out of a living hell. So you must be aware. Secondly, as a believer, you have authority. Isn't that good news? You have authority. It says in James 4 and 7, it says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and what? Submit to God, resist the devil. So here's the deal. I can't be passive. We're going to come back to this idea of no more, no more non-aggression treaties with the enemy. We cannot be passive anymore. You must resist the devil. He doesn't flee because you look pitiful. He doesn't flee because you're, you're, you're in your last gasp of hope. He doesn't flee because you cried. He flees when you resist and you submit to God. All four Gospels, I started looking this up. I kind of did what Ed was doing for the offering. I started looking up just passages for authority. There are so many passages that we would be here all day for me reading what Jesus himself said in just the Gospels with regards to the authority that he gave his followers with regards to dealing with demons and devils. 
we have authority. When you are born again, it's as if you were given the badge of the kingdom that you can pin on your shirt and you literally have the ability to look at the devil and say, stop. And even though you don't, just like a policeman who if he were to walk out here on Bees Ferry, stand in the middle of the road and raise his hand up to the cars that were coming and say, stop, what would those cars do? They would stop. Even though that policeman does not have the physical ability or power to be able to stop a car. They could run right over him if they wanted to, but he's got this badge on him that basically says the authority of the county or the authority of the state or the city or whatever authority he is under, he's wearing this badge. And so when he raises his hand, let's say it's a sheriff, the whole county literally is raising its hand saying, you must stop. And we obey that. Because if you run over him, guess what? You in bigger trouble. When you become a believer, it's as if you put a badge of the kingdom of God on your lapel. And when you lift your hand to the enemy and you begin to say, stop, he stops. Not because you can stop him on your own, but because the authority of the kingdom is behind you. And should he overrun you or overtake you, he's got bigger problems now than just you. Are you following me? But he won't stop. If you're not in the road, implementing your authority, right? You standing there going, pretty please stop. Those cars will go right by you. You've got to implement some things and you have the authority to do this, which gets us to our last point that a Christian must be assertive. Assertive. No passivity. You must fight oh we probably could linger here for a while you must you know what i've got a thousand things running in my mind right now let's get back to this 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 line satan flees when he sees you exercising faith walking in faith faith is really a weapon that's why we're to fight the good fight of faith. It's when you begin to exercise faith. Ed was talking about it as he was receiving an offering. I mean, I understand the enemy came to steal from you. He's going to steal something from you. How do, I, how do I respond to an enemy trying to steal from me? I respond in faith. You're going to take it away from me? Well, listen, listen, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give some more away. There you go. How do you like that? Take that. We can't be passive. We must be assertive. Being pitiful, being a victim will not change anything. You must assert your rights as a believer. Most people hate conflict. I understand. I'm not a big conflict guy either, if I can avoid it. But conflict is coming. Because when you were born again, you were dropped into a world that's adverse, that's under the sway of the evil one, and there's going to come conflict. And you need to understand how to assert the rights of a believer or the kingdom in an adverse culture. It's going to be more and more important as we continue to move through an American culture that we're living in. Have you seen the riots in the streets? Have you seen the absolute unleashing of vitriol and hatred? And, and I'm telling you, I, 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 and I'm not kidding when I say this, I, I wonder if we're not leading, uh, uh, being led into even armed 
some sort of armed conflict, even within the citizenry, because of the hatred that just exists. And what's going to protect us? What's going to protect our children? More, more scanners? Uh, you know, more metal detectors? I mean, how, how much technology do you think we're going to have to have in order to protect us from the evil one who has had untold millennia to study a human being and understand how he can get to us. I guarantee you, no matter what technology we create in order to protect us, that the enemy will find a way around it in order to destroy us. That is why our hope is not in chariots and horses and guns and bullets. And listen, I'm all for the Second Amendment. Believe me, I practice the Second Amendment in my house. But I'm here to tell you that my hope is not in an AR-15 that I may have at my house. My hope is in God alone. Chariots and horses may have a place, but not the place. And that's the part we've got to get back to. Understanding that it's going to take us to be assertive in this culture. It doesn't mean that you have to be mean or hateful. But there comes a moment as a believer, we say, we're here. We're not being run over. We are not the world's doormat. And we actually, we actually have a worldview. We actually have a philosophy. We actually have a master who created us and knows how to run it. And if we'll serve him, blessing will come again. But we're going to have to assert this authority. And it's going to happen not in the flesh. That's what Paul said. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So now let's move it to some bullet points. I, I thought that was a great pun I put in there, by the way. Bullet points in spiritual warfare. Some of you are getting this. Bullet points. First off, let's understand the levels of adversity that come to people's lives. All right, levels of adversity that may even come to your life. Let's talk about this for just a minute. The first level is, and there are not probably uh, a vast majority of people that fall under this, but it certainly exists because it's in the Scripture. But there are some people that have so yielded themselves to the devil that he literally owns them. Possession means ownership. So uh, if you're born again... What happens at the moment you're saved or you're born again, uh, Paul would tell us as well in Colossians, he says you were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so, so when you're born again, you're no longer in a domain where you're owned by the devil, but indeed you've changed ownership papers. So now I'm owned by Christ alone. I was a slave to sin, now I'm a slave to him. I wasn't free to do as I please, I was free to serve him. But those, there are those that are literally possessed by the enemy. Now, any person that's not born again uh, is under the domain, the authority of darkness. Not all of them may be possessed, but they're all under that authority. That's why it's so important we preach the gospel. Because we're just, not, we're just not trying to self-help people to remain functional while they're walking in darkness. That's the worst thing we can do is to try to somehow enable people in their darkness. Do you understand? We're not helping them. Don't, don't help people navigate their darkness. Get them out of darkness. And then the dysfunctionality will begin to leave. Now some, 
They become so dysfunctional, it's obvious they become possessed by the enemy. In other words, they're owned, and, and, and they could be highly, highly dysfunctional uh, with regards to this. Um, uh, you know, the, the type that need exorcisms and deliverance and all kinds of things because there's ownership. The enemy literally owns them or possesses them with regards to this. Now, in the scripture, interestingly, the word in the old King James Version they use is the word possess. For instance, in Mark chapter 5, uh, the, the demoniac named Legion, it says that he was demon-possessed. And the Greek word is demoniodzai, which, which those translators translated possession, but it probably is better translated having demons. And there's a little bit of difference here. Possession equals ownership, and yes, some people are outright owned by the enemy. However, there's another level of oppression that we call literally oppression. And under oppression, people who can even be believers can be oppressed by the enemy. Because most of Paul's writings here, he was writing to churches, talking to Christians, telling them, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that I read to you, as well as Ephesians chapter 6, when he says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. It means that you're being oppressed. You're in a wrestling match. Yes, you're a believer. The devil doesn't own you. Jesus owns you. But there is an oppression that's happening in your life. And people have different levels of oppression. Some people are oppressed so greatly you would think they were possessed. And others are just oppressed mildly. But all of that oppression stems from the enemy wanting to influence or thwart or hinder your life in some form or fashion. He doesn't give up just because you became born again. In fact, sometimes when you become born again, the crosshairs of the enemy's activity comes on you even more. But the third level of adversity that can come is what I simply call opposition. Opposition is when you're doing life and you're just finding yourself thwarted at different moments and that has something to do with the enemy as well. It doesn't mean that necessarily you're personally dysfunctional. It doesn't mean that you're, you're personally oppressed. But it does mean that there's opposition that has come against you whose roots find itself in the enemy or with his cohorts, which are demons, in order to stop you from getting where ultimately God would want you to be. And so possession, oppression, or opposition. I never thought of this when I did it. P-O-O, poo, poo-poo. So if there's poo-poo in your life, that's enemy work. That just struck me. That's what you get when you go away for vacation for a week and then they drop you in the pulpit again. That was, a, <laughs> that was a scholarly moment right there. Yeah, that's what my wife says. All right. How do we get through these things? How do we begin to distinguish some things going on here, like from speaking and praying, and, and I want to distinguish some things helping you in your warfare, and we're going to come in for a landing here relatively quickly. But I, I want to give you some nuggets because this summer we are tweaking we are assisting, we are helping our prayer times. In your devotional life, and our corporate life, we're wanting to do some things in order to shore up, to recover our lost intercession, our lost prayer time. And so I want to take just a moment and distinguish what I've said here, the difference between speaking and praying. This is going to be very, very important. And this is, again, this may be parsing things carefully, but I think this 
this, this is one area that needs pars. Sometimes, sometimes in practice things don't matter, but, but, but sometimes they do. And I just want to parse something here because I just think it's important that we understand so we don't, we don't go down some rabbit trails. I want to remind you first of the power of words. Remember the lesson we had a number of weeks ago where we talked about how words activated spiritual reality. The kingdom doesn't come, it is not activated, or the resources of heaven are not activated because you think right. It's because you speak right. Again, I use the illustration of being born again. You are not born again because you, you think right doctrinally. Now that's important, but it's not, that's not how you were born again. You confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and Paul said you were therefore saved. So belief in the heart and speaking activated the promises of salvation. Following me. That's the template. You must believe something in your heart to be true, and then you must speak these things from your mouth in order to activate them. So you can't, you can't think warfare, you must speak warfare. You can't think overcoming, you must speak overcoming. Speaking, we've said this for years. I think we heard this from probably Creflo, I think, years ago. You can't change even your thoughts with a thought. How do you change your thought life? By speaking. You want to change how you think? Change how you talk. And you keep talking the right way, it'll eventually change the way you think. But the problem is we talk the wrong way, thinking somehow it'll, it, that doesn't work. So you have to understand, why is that? It's because words contain power. So when it comes to spiritual warfare, what this means is you're going to have to speak some things out loud in order for this to be effective. In order for you to assert your authority or to assert your rights as a believer, you're going to have to say some things out loud in order for those to be activated because words activate spiritual reality. Satan is not rebuked because you came to church today. Satan is not rebuked because you read your Bible. Satan is not rebuked in any way, shape, or fashion until that rebuke comes out of your mouth. And when it comes out of your mouth at that particular moment, Spiritual reality is activated. Now why, this is another level to it. Secondly, why is that? Is because both angels and demons respond most effectively and quickly to you speaking the scripture. It's not just you saying something. Your authority is in Jesus. Your authority is in the Lord. Your authority is derived even from the book. This is his word. Now, I want you to find this scripture. I do want everyone to turn here. If you have your technology or write it down so you can look it up later. But, but I want to show you something. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Very important. Psalm 103, verse 20. This is what the psalmist says. Psalm 103, verse 20. The psalmist writes, Bless the Lord... You, his angels. Now, in, let's just stop. I want to break this down for just a moment. Bless the Lord, you, his angels. So the psalmist is writing here, actually speaking to angels. Now, before you ask, I'm gonna, I'm, this is what I'm parsing. 
and, and my next point will, will better clarify this, but we, we don't pray to angels and we don't pray to devils. But we do speak to angels and we speak to devils. This is the parsing part. There are some who have accused, me, others as well, that when you go, even during prayer time, into uh, the rebuking or the speaking or the exercising of authority toward whether it be devils or angels, that somehow you're praying to these entities. Hear me, I'm parsing this carefully. In fact, in fact let me just go to the next one. I'm going to go back to number two, so just hang on. Prayer is seeking. In other words, I don't seek angels, nor do I seek devils. I believe both are around, and they're both here for various purposes. But I'm not seeking them. I'm seeking the Lord. Are you following me? I have no problem with angels. I believe there's probably angelic activity in this room right now. There well could be demonic activity in this room right now. I have no problem with those thoughts or that reality. I'm not seeking them. I'm not, therefore, I don't pray to angels. I'm not seeking a special angel. I'm not seeking the devil. I'm not se- That's what prayer is all about, is seeking. And, and maybe we're parsing this closely, and maybe we're even parsing it in the heart. But I think it's an important parse. Because, because sometimes when, when, when you're activating spiritual reality by the power of your words... It can get confusing. So we're not seeking devils. We're not seeking angels. We're seeking God. But the fact of the matter is I must speak to angels and I must speak to devils if I want my authority to be activated. Are you understanding? That's close, but are you understanding what I'm saying? All right. I'm seeing you nod your head, so I'm going to believe that's the case. Angels and devils respond to God's word. So here in Psalm 103, verse 20, the psalmist says, Bless the Lord. He's speaking to angels. He's telling them, bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, and then what does it say? Who do his what? So what do angels do? They do his what? Now, don't do your word, do they? It doesn't say that do my word. It says that does his word. Heeding what? The voice of... Now, Here's how you get help. You know, the Hebrew writer said that we've been given ministering servants, meaning angels, to assist the inheritors of salvation, which is you and me. How are they to assist us? We, we are able to access their assistance by how? Speaking. But not just speaking anything. We must speak His... We must speak His Word. See, you, you, can, you can, there are times, well, let me give you an example. We'll go on vacation, maybe we're traveling, and, and what do we do? We, we loose ministering servants, we loose you ministering servants, we loose you angelic help to tend over the airplane, to tend over the vehicle. And you say that out loud. Now, I didn't pray to angels, did I? I wasn't praying to them. I was loosing them because there are promises in God's word, Psalm 91. that would respond because I'm sheltered in the shadow of the Most High. That he would not let harm come to me. So I can literally, so they will respond to that which is in the word of God or with that which is in the will of God. But if you try to activate them to do some form of rebellion, well, that, that'll fall on deaf ears. 
They won't respond. So here in Psalm 103, they heed the voice of his word. Now, the reason this is important is because what's a demon? A demon is a fallen... See? So we can, we can surmise a couple of things here. If angels respond most readily to the sound, the voice of his word, what do you think a demon's going to do? Well, he'll respond to the word of God in our mouth as we speak it. Yes. Exactly. That's, that's, that's how they were built. That's how they're created. And so you have, to, you have to get this in your spirit that if you're wanting, if you're ready to rebuke a devil, if you're ready to rebuke a demon, you've got to begin to speak God's word. Now sometimes, and we've done this at prayer time, and I think it's totally legitimate. I'm just parsing something here so we know what's going on. That as we're seeking the Lord, as we're praying for an outpouring, as, as we're interceding for needs and all the things that are legitimate aspects of prayer, there may come a moment even in the midst of it where we got to do a little spiritual warfare and we're going to have to speak at that moment against that oppressive, hindering, demonic power that's wanting to shut that thing down. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. So prayer is seeking. We're not seeking devils. We're not praying to devils. We're not praying to angels. We're praying to the Lord, but we must speak. Now, let's get down to our intercession. Hindrances in, in intercession, and I'm coming in for the, for the landing. Sometimes in your personal prayer life or even in corporate prayer life, you will know this to be true, that there can be oppressive or heavy, what we call oppressive or heavy atmospheres. A lot of times these are indicators of demonic challenge. Sometimes it means we just need to press through. Maybe we're tired, but sometimes it's an indicator that there are demonic challenges that are happening that need to be addressed. And we enter into warfare at that particular moment that's what the enemy wants to do he wants to shut down your prayer life he wants to shut down your intercession and he's going to do that by coming against you to provide that oppressive or that heavy atmosphere and and so here's the deal uh you can either be worn out give up throw in the towel or you can assert your rights to rebuke to press through and uh to deal with him by activating your authority, okay? These can be hindrances in our intercession. The second one I call delays, distractions, and detours. You need to understand, and, and I'm going to end with this, I believe, right now. First ending, first conclusion. Daniel chapter 10. Go read Daniel chapter 10. That's your assignment for the week. Go read Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel gets an unveiling of why prayers that he prayed were not answered immediately. And in this unveiling, what he finds out is that there is this, this mighty struggle that's going on in the heavenly realm. That he, that's an unseen realm that he can't see. The prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, which are actually pictures of principalities that stand over territories, are wrestling with Michael the archangel. And Daniel prays in chapter 10. And his question is, how come I prayed and nothing happened? And the unveiling that took place at that moment was the fact that there was this wrestling match that was going on in the heavenly realm between Michael 
and these other principalities over the issue of that prayer coming to pass in Daniel's life. It's an interesting passage. I put this up here because we've got to understand that a lot of our intercession, especially when it comes to revival and awakening, do you understand, do you understand how devastating to the domain of darkness awakening would be? How devastating revival would be to the kingdom of darkness? To see that transfer of all of those souls from his domain into the kingdom of Christ himself? There's a lot of wrestling that goes on in this area. And we need to understand that if we're not seeing instant answers to some of our prayers, because the problem isn't that God isn't willing or able or powerful or responsive. The answer, I believe, at times exists somewhere between the throne and our own situation. There's wrestling matches that are taking place as to whether or not we will be faithful, whether we will stand firm, whether we will maintain our faith and not fall into doubt. All these things are important as we, as we press into kingdom items. There are delays and distractions and detours. Can we all say amen to the fact that we have prayed and we have prayed and we have prayed and it seems like at times things get worse before they get better. Why is that? It's because there's an enemy that decided he was going to aggressively fight you. Now here's the question. Will you aggressively assert your authority and maintain your authority in order to see that answer come to pass? Ed told that story this morning, and he didn't know I was going to hijack and go off on it. That's just a distraction, Ed. There's more than enough resource in the economy of the kingdom to take care of that. Yeah. Yeah. The keys. You got keys, man. You lost one key, but I already know you got more keys than that. See? It's, it's a delay. I'm not going to be able to go through the front door. It's a delay. It's a distraction, no doubt. It's a detour. I didn't plan it. Wasn't in the budget. I don't know. I yeah, it's everything. But the question is whether or not I will be shaken from, from the, the fact that my authority, I still have authority. God has something bigger, something better. There, there is an authority at work. Hey, listen, you can take it as this. If the enemy is down to breaking keys off and locks, you're close. Are you following me? <laughs> Amen. A lot, of, a lot of historians give a bad report to the middle-aged reality of the Crusades. You know, schools change their names. They used to, their schools that were called, their nicknames or mascots were crusaders and they had to change it because it's, it's insensitive to Muslim folk and it may well be, depending on how you understand history. The crusades are some of the most misunderstood historical realities, though, that ever get taught. The crusades are always painted as a bunch of convoluted Christians running around Eastern Europe and in the Middle East 
and killing innocent Muslim people. That's not exactly the Crusades. The Crusades, listen, I'll tell you what the Crusades are. The Crusades was the church reaching the point where it saw the infection of Islam and all the worst of Islam coming into their communities, taking over their holy places, killing and raping men, boys, women, until finally the church said, that's enough. And they began to, to respond to that. And that's the part you never hear, is the response. This wasn't, this wasn't an initiation of the church to do a crusade. This was the response of the church as to what was happening. And in the Latin, and I believe they took it out of Psalm 149, out of the Latin, the motto of the crusade was this, Deus Volt. And in the Latin, it means God wills it. God wills it. Hear me when I say this. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not even looking for a fight with the devil. I'm not looking for a fight with anybody. But here's the deal. It is time that you and I, as the people of God, recover some things. It's time to recover. It's time to recover. It's time to recover what's been lost in your household. Maybe you've lost family members and friends. It's time to recover. Time to recover the family tree. Maybe it's time to recover some finances that have been lost. Maybe it's time to recover that. Maybe it's time to recover your health. Maybe it's time to recover maybe a lost job or a career. I gotta, there's some things i got to recover here. Maybe as a church we need to recover what the church was really meant to be. You know, we're not a self-help center. We're a salvation center. We are, a, we are, we are a, 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 an outpost for the kingdom of God that's pressing the claims of our king into the earth which will ultimately be a blessing. We've got to recover some concepts and some things back again. We're recovering intercession and praying again. We're trying to get this recovered. In our nation, there are some things we need to recover in our nation. That's why we pray. I'm not trying to jam a religion down anybody's throat. I'm trying to keep the blessing of God upon our nation is what I'm trying to do. And the blind people don't get it. The blind, deceived people don't get it. They think I'm the problem. They don't understand we're the answer in him. And so it appears to be a crusade. You want a crusade, Pastor? Deus vault. Yep. God wills it. God wills it. And it's time we assert our authority, not with our flesh. You don't have to get angry. You don't have to get mad. I have to tell myself this all the time. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But when you understand the weapons that you have and you exercise them in prayer, through prayer, with your voice, listen, things begin to happen. How about it? You want some things to happen? I do. Stand with me, will you?